So like I said, uh, New Year's, we are, it's January 5th. How, how are, for those of you who make resolutions, how, how are your resolutions going? It's holding strong. Um, some people, um, after the service told me, they're already waning five days in. Um, in 2018, they conducted a global survey, um, not an not a American survey, a global survey of 31.4 million people to determine exactly how long, on average, people stick to their resolutions. The answer, January 14th. Statistically speaking, you have nine more days with those resolutions of yours, which is real encouraging. Two weeks. This is the extent of human determination to be different. Can we all just admit it? The old you is so much easier to pull off than the new you. And yet we can't give up the dream. There is one thing that I know is true of every single person in this room. You want to be different. And the Bible recognizes this. The reason why I know that's true of you is because the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches us that there is an original design that still echoes within. A a, a tormented unrest bearing witness to one truth. You are not as you ought to be. Our therapeutic culture, with its self-acceptance propaganda, is lying to you, and you know it. You know you are not as you ought to be. Or are you? My sermon title this morning is odd, isn't it? Becoming the already new you. There are endless books... Endless self-help books to help you become the new you. This is the only book that invites you to become the already new you. And this is what I want to dwell on as we enter into 2020. The utterly unique paradigm of Christian change. And we see it outlined here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. His message is really simple. Stop living the old you... Because you are the new you, therefore fight to become what you already are. Confused? Let's look at it together and see how this plays out. Two ways. We're going to look at the ways of the old you and the ways of the new you. Let's start with our former self because that's how Paul starts. The ways of the old you. So he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, contextually speaking, the word Gentile there uh, was used to describe the unbelieving, um, secular, pagan world of Ephesus. Meaning Paul is speaking to the converted church in Ephesus, commanding them not to walk as the unconverted world around them. But he doesn't just command them. What he does is he warns them. In an attempt to wake them up to their folly... What he does is he takes them down the path of destruction that inevitably follows the ways of the world. And what we will see here is a complete meltdown. Literally a total undoing of wrong thinking, hardened hearts, and evil practices. Let's follow Paul's argument, which is his warning. 
It begins with wrong thinking. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify, Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in what? Their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Paul here would agree with Richard Weaver that ideas have consequences. His argument is that our problem begins with futile minds, with darkened understanding, with ignorance of truth. That is to say, behind every wrong is wrong thinking. This was true from the very beginning. Before the forbidden fruit was indulged, a lie was indulged. You will not surely die, for God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will become like him. That's not true. That's a lie. But they yielded to it. They gave way to the futility of the mind, as Paul puts it, and that's what started the whole mess that we're in. But it's important to understand that our destruction is not relegated to the mind. It's not just ignorance that's the problem. The futility of the mind gives way to a more severe condition, a hardened heart. Continue on verse 18. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. The tragedy of the fallen condition is that in many ways you can't argue with it. Because it extends beyond the arena of ideas and into the arena of desires. If the problem with humanity was just wrong thinking, then skillful argumentation would fix the world. But it's not. It's much deeper than that. We have this hardness about us, uh, meaning we're not merely misinformed, we're misled. We don't merely believe untruth, we are actually hardened, calloused against the truth. Now here's where Augustine is so helpful. Augustine Um, was pre-enlightenment. What happened in the enlightenment and modernity that came from it is is that human reason and intellect got elevated to a disproportionate level such that humanity is viewed as the sum of their knowledge, meaning if you can just correct their thinking, you'll correct humanity. But Augustine would argue that's not true. And the Bible would argue that's not true. Certainly what we think informs what We love, but Augustine would argue that we are controlled less by what we think and much more by what we love. Ultimately, it's a matter of the heart. And what's so tragic about the fallen condition we see in our text is that our hearts are now callous. Not just believing lies, but refusing truth. And then the two converge together to give way to the fruit of evil practices. Continue on with 19. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what he's done is he's moved from the head to the heart, now to the hands, to the acting out of what is conceived in wrong thinking and hardened hearts. Now this reference is to uh, the rampant, rampant sexual immorality um, of, of the exceedingly perverse culture in Ephesus, um, and certainly our culture can relate to their culture more and more, but Paul's point is not exclusive to sexuality. It could be anything. The principle is the offering up. It's, he says they, get, they have given themselves up to sensuality. This is the language of worship. You see, fallen humanity is still a worshiping humanity. We can't help ourselves. 
We are offering ourselves up to something, so to speak. And, and, and that worship that we do always dictates our actions, meaning you obey what you worship. So if you worship God, you obey God. If you worship false gods, an idol, well, you will likewise obey that idol. And that's what Paul says. They have given themselves up to sensuality. The sensuality of the Ephesus culture is their false god. Therefore, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they offer themselves up, which in turn leads them to obey what they are offering themselves up to, the practice of impurity, and thus the demise is complete. Futility of the mind that denies the truth of God Hardened hearts that resist the truth of God, which all leads to obedience to false gods. Such is the sad story of fallen humanity. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Remember, he's talking to people for whom this pattern is apparently no longer true. So why belabor the ways of our old identity? Well, because Paul sees it as something that we have a hard time shaking And what he's doing here is he's trying to wake us up. Paul says, you must not walk as they do for, and then he takes us down the path of destruction of the ways of the world. It's a warning. It's a sober reminder that this pattern is what you escape and you dare not return to your old way of being. So let's pause. I think it'd be appropriate to pause and heed his warning. Christian, let me remind you, there's nothing good to be found in the old you. I know how tempting the old you is. It's a lie. Only destruction. Do not return to the slavery of Egypt. And if you are resisting Jesus this day, then listen, all I have, all I have to say to you is, is, is the only thing you have to look forward to is your own demise. It never works. Now, one time has the way of our fallen world worked for anyone. So wake up. Come to your senses. Renounce your own devastation, whether that be the first time or, Christian, you need need a fresh dose of repentance. Renounce your own devastation and then fight with every ounce of your being to become who you already are. Having seen the ways of the old you, let's get to his main argument, which is the ways of the new you. Continue on, verse 20. But, so there's the contrast. From the old you to the new you. But that is not the way you learned Christ. I love that there's an exclamation point in the ESV there, because it's very faithful to how emphatic the Greek is here. That's not the way you learn Christ. Now, isn't that interesting wording? You learn ideas, not a person, which is exactly his point. He is treating Christ not just as a person, but as an entire paradigm shift. A a new reality, a new way of seeing things, an utterly transformed life as we know it. 
You see, you would expect for him to say here in verse 19, in contrast to the way, the, 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 the way of the world, in contrast to that, you, you would expect him to say, but that's not who you are. But the point is, that's precisely what, his, what he is saying, but he is defining who we are by Jesus. We are people who have learned Christ. And this changes everything. Now, what are we to do with this new identity? Again, it feels paradoxical, but Paul is going to say, this is what you're to do. You are to become who you are. Verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In those few verses, Paul just described his view of this thing we call Christian sanctification. And it's just, it's really simple. It's twofold. Don't overcomplicate sanctification. It's twofold. Put off who we used to be, put on who we now are. Let's look at each of those. We put off who we used to be. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former way, former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The, word put, the, the language put off there is milder than Paul actually usually talks. Uh, typically, when talking about the old self, the old you, he uses the language of put to death. The principle is a simple one. You are a new person in Jesus Christ, but there is remaining corruption, remnants of your former identity that still linger, but your disposition toward such things has radically changed. That which we used to identify with, we now struggle against. And the goal of that struggle is nothing short of death. When Paul says put off the old you, he means put it off. As in, it's gone. It is dead. John Owen is one of my heroes, you know this, named one of my sons after him. Um, his famous, most famous work, I've, I've preached entire sermons on it, is entitled The Mortification. Mortification is a Puritan language for death, put to, putting to death, kill. The mortification of sin in the believer, and I always find myself returning to it in the new year. I did it again this week. And Owen wrote his entire work to answer one question. What are Christians supposed to do with the lingering sins in their life? And his answer is very simple. Kill them. Here's his famous conclusion. Though indeed our sin has been meritoriously slain by the cross of Christ. Here's what he's saying in Puritan language. Though indeed your sins are forgiven. Though indeed you are righteous in Christ. Though indeed it's, it is finished. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Meritoriously slain by the cross. Though that is true, this we says... The mortification, the killing of indwelling sin is the constant duty of believers. John Owen believes your number one duty every day is to kill your sin. He says there is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then his famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now that extreme 
relentless, ruthless, Puritan-esque disposition towards sin fits the Apostle Paul in our passage. But sadly, this is not the disposition I see in many Christians these days, and I'm going to include myself in that. Christian culture is nowhere like the culture of the Puritans of old. What has become popular in our churches is to practice what Bonhoeffer labels cheap grace. This is a presuming upon God's grace. It is the acceptance of grace void of radical repentance. And our tradition in particular can fall victim to that because we love grace so much. And this cheap grace is marked by a disposition not of mortification, but of appeasement. We dabble, we flirt, we enjoy it a little. And our aim all along is just keep it under control, right? Don't let it blow up. Don't let it ruin my life. Just keep it manageable. This is not fitting who we are. We are a people who murder our sins, not play games with them. Whenever and wherever you perceive the tiniest remnant of sin that used to define who you were, just a lustful glance, a little flirt, the tiniest, most subtle piece of gossip, a hidden covetousness on Instagram, a spark of bitterness toward a neighbor, whatever it may be, in any form it appears, we put it to death. But there is more to it than that. Our growth as Christians goes, 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 goes further than putting off who we used to be. Next, Paul tells us to put on who we now are. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self. Now again, such strange wording. Put on my new self. If it is my new self, then isn't it me? Why do I need to put on what I already am? This is what I mean by becoming the already new you. The aim of sanctification is the realization of who you already are in Christ Jesus. This is so important. Please listen. This is so important. Many of us view sanctification as only putting off the old self. Essentially, our Christianity is nothing but telling ourselves no. I'm not supposed to do that. Not supposed to do this. No, 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 no. Self denial. And that has its place, as we just saw. But it cannot be disconnected from the pursuit of our new identity. When we exclusively say no to sin and fail to say yes to God, then we undermine the entire purpose of Christian sanctification. You know, Pharisees were really good at saying no, their self denial. Their piety would put every single person in this room to shame. But they refused to say yes to Jesus. And the aim of Christian salvation is not religious self-denial. Any good religion can give you that. The aim is Christ-likeness. And we see this in our verse. Paul says, put on the new self. Okay, well, what is this new self that is ours? What is our new identity? He says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says that we have literally been created. The tense of that word communicates that this is something that has happened. It's done. 
we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you understand what Paul, how Paul just described you? You are quite literally the likeness of God's righteousness and holiness. You want to know who you are? You are as righteous as the righteousness of Jesus. You are as holy as the holiness of God. That's you. To which every single one of us would say, sure doesn't look like me. Which is precisely the point, Christian. Rise up and become who you are. How? How do we do this? How do we become the righteousness and holiness that we are? The first half of sanctification is so straightforward, right? Repentance, self-denial, put it to death, say no. I mean, we need help doing that. We're not good at doing that, but I don't have to define for you what it means. But to, to put on our new identity feels helplessly ambiguous. How do I become me? Well, don't overcomplicate things, okay? God has ordained means of growing us in our identity. Oh, that 2020 would become a year at TCPC marked by mundane, routine, disciplined labor in the spiritual disciplines that are promised to change us. I know you want to do it every year. Let's make it happen this year. Read your Bible. Memorize your Bible. Pray, pray, pray. Life of prayer. Get in community. Get in a parish group. Fellowship with believers. And for, literally for the love of God, come to church. Every single Sunday of 2020, come to church to be fed by word and sacrament. Unless you're bedridden or imprisoned, in which case we'll bring word and sacrament to you. Does that have to be TCPC? Now, Mr. Legalist up here, you're allowed to leave town, but go to church somewhere when you're out of town. Listen, don't overcomplicate this, people. This is, this is Christianity 101, and it still works. We know what we need to do to become like Jesus. May this be the year we actually do it, and your church is here to help. I want every single one of you to clear your schedules for February 13th through 15th. As Mark said, our annual Go to the Bluegrass Conference is upon us. Registration opens this week. And do you know what we've chosen as our theme this year? You know, we do these conferences, big conferences, big vision, grand visions. You know what the pastors felt led to do this year with our conference as a theme? With God. An entire conference on the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. We're bringing in one of my favorites on the topic, um, Dan Doriani from Covenant. Who's, who's really gold in this area. And I just want our entire community to be there as we recommit ourselves to the ordinary. Because the ordinary is promised to yield the extraordinary, a new you. So we put off the old you and become the already new you. Now, with all that being said, that is, I just gave you Christian sanctification 101. With all that being said, let me ask you this question. What do you need to become? You know the answer. I know you know the answer because I know how faithful the Holy Spirit is to convict. So name it. I want specifics. What do you need to become? Now, unlike New Year's resolutions, which last approximately 14 days, 
I'm going to ask you to come at that differently. And it's this. The pressure is off. Completely off. You are who you are in Christ Jesus and nothing's going to change that. You already are who you should be. Now become who you ought to be. And that paradoxical truth is the key to change. Because what it does is it breaks the cycle of defeat, which is what is so paralyzing. You know how it goes. You want to be different. We all want to be different. You try to be different. A lot of times it's right now at the beginning of the year that we give it a good try, but you fail and every new effort met with new failure only spirals you down into the cycle of defeat. And we're left just, what's the point? My pathology is inescapable. My habits are unbreakable. My failure is unavoidable. What's the use in trying? This is just who I am. The gospel says that's not who you are. That that's a lie. Who you are is the righteousness of God. You are what you long to be. So now you are free to become what you ought to be. And it's that clean slate freedom that is the key. What's the big deal with January 1 anyway? Why is that the globally recognized day for everybody on the planet to give change a try? It's just a day like any other day. How come we don't do July 18th resolutions? Why January 1? It's the power of newness. A feeling that we can let the past die and start fresh. You know what New Year's Day does? Vainly promise us what the gospel actually provides us. So I say to you, forget your New Year's Day resolutions. I'll do you one better. His mercies are new each morning. So how about tomorrow? And the next day. And the next day. And every day. Beneath the truth that we already are what we long to be. Therefore, let us strive more and more to become the already new you. Let me pray. Help us, O God, to become what we already are. Thank you. We celebrate that it is finished. The work is done and this table recognizes that we are who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, Lord, strengthen us, free us, clean slate, start over, free us to become what we already are and use the sacrament to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.